When I got the call from the, the travel agent and she said, oh, you're not gonna be able to get back on your flight. And, and what do you do when you're gonna have a nervous breakdown? You turn to jam making, there's no other way. There's no other way out of that. You make jam, you make jam. This is the Deep in the Weeds podcast. I'm Anthony Huckstep. Over the summer, we're going to catch up with previous guests and share yarns from their lives in food. While many of us are dreaming about traveling again, Pierre Issa, aka Pepe Sayer, spent three months abroad during 2021, and he's got some stories to share. Pepe, how are you? I'm good. I'm good. Great. You've spent um, a bit of time overseas, which many of us haven't done for a couple of years. What, what was it like being abroad? Uh, look, it was, it was very interesting. It was, for example, it was my first time to France and, and, and uh, in Paris where, where there was no, no one at the Louvre. So you just walk down, you walk through the Louvre and no one's there. <laughs> it was quite, it was very, it was very weird traveling uh, the last four months uh, in Europe. Uh, it was it was actually quite strange, you know. You in some of the capital cities I was in, there was just it was just empty. It was only locals. So I guess it's a bit like when you go down to the opera house and and you you walk down there and there's just oh my god, there's no one here, you know. So it was it was a bit like that. You rock up to the uh, um, tour evil and there's no one there. There's just it's just a, it's just a ghost town. It's quite. It's quite amazing. What was the experience like for you? How did you feel given that you had had, had the experience in Australia and you've been, you've arrived back since? Is it, does it feel different um, with the citizens there does, to Australia? Oh, uh, definitely. I think, I think it's true to say that we, we definitely are a few months, if not more, um, behind um, Europe or or. The, the parts of the world that I traveled, which was Europe, Middle East, parts of Asia, um, in, in comparison to what's happening there and where they're up to with the COVID versus where we're up to with the COVID. But I feel now we're sort of, we're sort of joining, like we're almost ahead of a lot of the places that I was in because of our vaccination rates. So when I first got back, as we're opening up, as we're discovering life with COVID, they'd already experienced all that. Like when you take into account England or, or when I went to London and Suffolk, um, they'd already, you know, that they, they were already past that. Um, mar- they weren't wearing masks anymore. There was no more check-in uh, into venues or where you went out. You didn't have to show a vaccination to get into a restaurant. Like they were already past that. Um, where, where it's a good guide, like we're sitting here now going, oh, what do you mean no mask and, and no this and no that? Yeah, I mean, they've already... So we're, you could say we're watching what's happening and our governments are putting into play what they're seeing overseas or what their counterparts over there are doing. So it's quite interesting. But you sort of don't understand that un- unless you were there watching it unfold and then you come back here and you're going, okay, well... We're about three weeks from them doing that, for example, you know, them changing what they're going to do, their strategies and all that. I understand you went on a food production sort of self-education program uh, while you were away. What, what did you learn? Oh, my God. Where do I start? I, I must admit, I've only been back, say, three weeks. I haven't, 
I haven't really downloaded everything that, that I, that I experienced when I was over there. Um, I mean, I, I, I spent a lot of time, so it's important to say where, I guess, where I was. I, I spent a lot of time in Lebanon and I was there during, um, the olive harvest season. And then, well, I was there from early July. So uh, there was the whole summer fruits and then the olive harvest at the end of end of the year in October, which was fascinating. And I spent a lot of time on a, on a fishing boat every morning fishing for uh, some uh, beautiful, <laughs> beautiful fish for my lunch or, or morning tea. So that was quite good. And then I was, you know, off to Turkey uh, to visit Soma from, um, from Effendi and restaurant and um he he's one of the master chef hosts over there so i went and paid him a visit and learned how to make kaimak which is like a clotted cream and then you know went over to see johnny johnny at fen farm in in england and a few other places uh, a few other things i went to do i went to learn or meet this cheesemaker at helsinki university uh that um made cheese from the milk the cow that the university has some cows right near the airport in Helsinki so there was there was quite a lot that um I was exposed to and and I was actually searching for them to learn as much as I could um about food and different food movements and and um and also um I was lucky enough to go to a few expos in uh, Istanbul about uh, food and how we're losing certain species because of climate change and because of mass fishing and uh, food production. So it was really, really eye-opening from, from, for, for what I do, I guess, for a living and, and what I believe in and how I see the food movement and what's, what, what does sustainability mean in food. Um, but, but also, you know, you, you have to also think about that when you have a a city of if you're living say in Sydney and you've got a city of five million people it's very hard to go okay well everyone should have an olive tree in their backyard and then they should harvest that once a year and then go and press their own olives to have their olive oil so there's 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 also you know like you when you're in a village and and everyone's harvesting their own trees and taking them to the press and and you know there's a stone press and they're waiting for their olives to be pressed and then they fill up their tanks uh and and take them home and that's their olive oil for the year i mean it's very different than say when you talk about a city of five million or 10 million or 20 million right so it's uh, it's uh you know like like we'd like to think that everyone in france makes their own cheese or or <laughs> everyone in Italy or, or Spain, you know, makes their own olive oil, but they don't, you know, everyone's majority of people, you know, 90, 99.999% of people buy, buy it in, right? So, so there's, uh, there's that as well to consider. On the surface, cheese making doesn't seem that far removed from what you do with butter. But what, what surprised you about what you've learned with cheese making? Uh, I think, well, so when I, when I originally went to Lebanon, um, I, I plan, my plan was to, I mean, I went there for uncompassionate reasons. We had a death in the family. I had to look after my dad for a month because he 
he couldn't look after himself. He has dialysis and, and we didn't have anyone, you know, to do that. So I, um, out of myself and my siblings, I, I was in the best position to, to go over and, and do that. Um, my other sister that lives in the UK, she, she went before me and then I went and covered her. So we sort of tag teamed on that. Um, but one of the plans, I knew I was going to be over there for a while, uh, for at least a month and a half. So I'd planned to, I wanted to learn everything I could about um, the, the soft cheese they make in Lebanon. So I, I made it my mission to, you know, as soon as I got into the village, uh, I was like asking everyone, oh, who makes cheese here? Who's got cows? Who's got, you know, like this sort of thing I would do here if I wanted to know something. And then, you know, every every uh, auntie in the village was sort of like, oh, I make cheese and come. And, and another one would tell me I make cheese. And then this person had cows. And so I'd, I'd go up, my morning would start, say on the fishing boat, come off the fishing boat, try some raw fish. Then by lunchtime, I'm, you know, I'm, I'm at one of the auntie's houses, not my auntie's, I mean, an elder in the village. And, and then they're teaching me how to make the cheese. And then it's like, okay, well, I need to see the cows. I want to meet the cows. And then, you know, by the time I found, oh, this guy, no, he adds water to his milk. You don't want to use his milk. And you got all that sort of stuff going on there. And uh, then by the time you find, you know, and then it's like a, okay, well, we got to get to the bottom of this. So I decided, well, the only person that knows anything about anything is going to be the local priest. So I called up the local priest and and I'm like, oh, Abuna Rene, like Father Rene, tell me, who's, who's got the best milk in the village? And he's like, yeah, you only want to talk to this guy. You know, this is the guy. This is the guy. So I'd, I'd make my way. So I'd, I'd call them and introduce myself and can I come? But, and, and then you can't come before 5.30 because that's when the milk comes. So you'd go get the milk and... So it was, it, was, it was really, really good. It was really good to make, to go back to that because that's what it was sort of like in my childhood when I, was, when I grew up in Lebanon. That's what it was like when we made yogurt or cheese or anything. You sort of had to go direct to the source to get the real beautiful produce. So it was, um, but it was very interesting because there was like, there was so many variables and it was so complex. So there was, there was no fuel in Lebanon at the time. There was one hour of electricity a day. There was no fuel and no diesel. So what was interesting about it, and, and the inflation was like, it was uh, 20 things. So their, their currency, uh, so for every dollar, you bought 20 times more of their currency. So $1 was 20,000 liras, where when I was there two years ago, $1 was 1,500 liras. So the inflation was times 20. And um, so what was interesting about that is you saw how people couldn't, because they import a lot of their meat there, and so people couldn't afford imports anymore. So you saw a lot of people going back to the land, going back to, you know, the person with the piece of land that had chickens on it and, and had, had his own eggs, became the only option for people to buy eggs. So the stores no longer were relevant in that sense because people couldn't afford to go to the stores anymore and buy um, those staples. They were starting to go back to 
you know, this guy up here has milk, this guy over here has eggs, this, this lady over here has, you know, grapes. So it really became like that. It was really fascinating to watch because, and there was no fuel to do long trips. There was no, there was no diesel to run generators. Like one of the, one of the most amazing things I saw, I was in Biblos and I was walking along the cliff road going into the city and there was some greenhouses there and the guy was in the greenhouses and he had the plow attached to a donkey and he was plowing inside of the greenhouses. I mean, it was fascinating stuff. Like that was just mind blowing to me because, okay, for, for look, maybe to someone that lived there, that wouldn't have been that fascinating. I give you that. But to me coming, living here in first world country, I mean, it's not very often you see someone plowing the field with a donkey, you know, like it's, 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 it's not exactly the done thing. Uh, they have a tractor, they have a John Deere, you know, latest model. Um, so it's, so it was, it was very, very interesting, um, living through that. And then because I got stuck there because the border to Australia was, was locked, I ended up spending more time over that four month period of traveling and then, you know, um, seeing a lot more of that as the economy got worse and worse and worse you sort of went, wow, okay, this is very interesting, very enlightening. Uh, it definitely makes you think, from my point of view, it's sort of like, oh, back in Australia, if the economy did go bad, touch wood, or something did happen, this is, you're, you're learning, I'm learning now what to do. <laughs> you know, this is, this is a lesson in economics and business management that I went through. Where do you see the future of food and primary production? Uh, definitely away from the way we're going now. Uh, uh, I mean, we're, we're sort of midway. When you go to Europe, you really feel like, like the packaged food, ready-to-eat food, the, the massive uh, packaging, plastic and everything. Like you're in, you're in a place like Zurich. I was in Zurich. I was in Switzerland. I walked into... Um, one of their supermarkets, I think they're called co-op stores. The everything's ready to eat. Everything's packaged. Everything's like mass amounts of packaging, which, which is sort of what we here in Australia have tried to move away from, I guess. Um, there's a push to move away from that, but then we keep going back to that, back to that single serve, um, take home, throw in the microwave or in the oven, that sort of thing. And, and that in itself is, I see it as a very unsustainable way of to eat. You, you just, that is like, it creates a lot of rubbish. It creates, um, it costs a lot more to do. Um, people are paying more. So it's like, it's like all geared upon just mass disposable income, you know? So if we're training our, our uni students to eat like this, or, or, or people that live away from home to eat like that. Let's just take that as an example. Zurich might be full of uni students. I don't know. But how are they going to eat when they're older? So we're not laying any great foundations. And we're talking about a, a first world country here, Switzerland. Uh, when you compare that 
to to how you're eating in a third world country it we've got a lot to learn from how people that are not fortunate with their economic situation so so if you ask me what i learned look at third world how they're eating and that's probably how we need to start eating rather than going we're rich we can just eat everything um you know like you got to question that you got to question that like i walk into a supermarket here and i look and i go oh my god like where where is this all heading because you just got everything's packed for you know your snow peas are packed in little packs of 100 gram like oh are you kidding like look at all this packaging you know where uber eats let's go you know everyone's uh, everyone's got bags and bags and bags i mean if you order from anywhere you got three bags like there's a lot of rubbish, you know, there's a lot of rubbish generated here. That's a lot of energy that it took to make all this. So I don't want to sound like I'm, I've lost the plot, but um, when it comes to sustainability, but wow, it's something I really noticed as soon as I left um, uh, there, say I left Lebanon and I went to Europe, I really noticed that. And then when I came back to Australia, I really noticed how much rubbish we generate for, for nothing. Like it's, it, it's not keeping the product fresher or better. It's just, it's just consumerism gone just for no reason, just to make people buy more or, or up the, 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 the spend on one unit. Like, oh, your meal tonight costs you nine ninety five, But, you know, that, that rubbish that it generated, my God, what are you going to do with all that? During this period of time, you became quite adept at jam making. How, oh, how did yes. that come about? Um, when when I got stuck in uh, when I when I got the news when I got the call from the the travel agent and um, she said to me um, it was it was in sort of the middle of uh, to the to the last week of August I got the call it was a horrible call and she said oh you're not going to be able to get back on your flight to go back to Sydney um, I said well when when do I get back and she said oh the end of 24th of November and my I the the I I think I I turned I turned uh blue I I just I was gonna have a nervous breakdown when I when I got that news it was terrifying um and and what do you do when you're gonna have a nervous breakdown you turn to jam making there's no other way there's no other way out of that you know like there's no other way right Hux you gotta you make jam you make jam you just you know so uh, so it was it was really interesting because I I met um there's some family members that I met up with and I was I was I was talking to about um you know, I'm stuck here and this and that. And, and when I was telling that, I was at their house and they were making jam. So I could smell the jam and I go, what are you doing here? And she goes, oh, I make jam. And I go, that's not much jam you're making. It's like tiny. It's like, how many jars will that make? And she said, oh, three. And I go, okay, interesting. I thought, you know, you'd make in the season, say, of strawberries or, or prunes or whatever, whatever it is, um, You'd, you'd make quite a lot and save it for the winter. I thought that was the concept of jam making. And she goes, no, 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 that's rubbish. She goes, I make seasonal and I make it 
weekly or bi-weekly. And, and she goes, and then I put as much sugar as I want. So if I'm eating my jam regularly, I don't need a lot of sugar in it to, to, keep, the, um, to keep it from going off for six months or a year. So I reduce the sugar and I only eat what's in season because there's an abundance, obviously, of fruit. Like take, take Australia, how much fruit goes to waste? It's incredible if you saw the numbers. And you could make seasonal um, and eat seasonally and make seasonal jams. And instead of having 50% or 30% or 100% um, sugar, you, you just reduce the sugar right down and then you're not worried about it keeping, but you, you make it as if you're making a jam, but you make less. So I, I started learning about, well, every fruit's different. Like when we were making the quince, it was, you know, you do need a lot of sugar, unfortunately, for quince. Um, but, you know, when you're making strawberries, like strawberries and raspberries mixed together, you, you don't need a lot of sugar. You can go with 10, 15% sugar and, and you can get this most incredible jam that lasts, say, a month. You know, you, you don't need it to last more than that anyway, if you eat a lot of jam. So it became a bit of an obsession along with the cheese making and then, you know, everything else I did was, was almost an obsession. I had nothing else to do except to work a little bit when, when you know, the time difference was, you know, I was still doing um, my part of my job, which is, say, marketing, do, doing the social media for Pepe Sayer. Um, doing the product development and then but but at the end Mel Mel's here and she she took the reins over everything so she was so I was just reporting back to her with what needed to be done from my end and she was doing the rest I I did have a lot of spare time a little earlier you mentioned you were on a fishing boat tell, tell me about the typical day on the boat well the day starts at 5 a.m um we, we'd get down to the mina or the port and then we'd jump on the fluka, they're called. They're, they're beautiful little boats for the Mediterranean. Uh, and then we'd, um, we'd basically, uh, well, you'd pack your coffee and your breakfast and you get on the, on the boat and you go out. You, you don't go more than about 6Ks offshore, otherwise you need another license. But after 6Ks, you get all the tuna. But we were mainly going out for Mac tuna which is a small variety. It's a variety of tuna, which, you, which is beautiful raw. So uh, mac tuna, it, it, people do cook it, but they, they, a lot of people like it cooked. I think it goes a bit tough cooked. So, so um, but raw, it is magnificent raw, whether you have it with, however you have sashimi, however you like it. I mean, I was, I was having it, because soy sauce wasn't available because <laughs> it was a, there was, a, they were in the middle of a crisis. Um, so, uh, you know, virgin olive oil, salt, pepper, and lemons, you know, and, and that was just mind blowing. So we'd get off the boat. We, we'd go out for about till 8.30. Then we'd go back to the, uh, to the house. We'd um, uh, skin it, you know, bone cut it, all that, prepare it and just eat it um, with just fresh lemon juice, olive oil, salt and pepper in some Lebanese bread. 
and it was just to die for it just melt in your mouth and then straight after that we'd be down for our 2k swim and then after the 2k swim it would be breakfast again and then um it would basically be um uh jam making or cheese making most days and then by then the sydney office would be open so sydney would be open and then i'd work in the afternoon with the guys so it was quite good Given this extraordinary trip that you had and the experiences, um, how are you approaching Pepe Sayer into 2022 and beyond? Has, has this experience affected the way you want to take the, the brand? Yeah, it, it definitely has. It definitely has. I, I think that more than anything, um, I believe we're on the right track as being a holistic, um, uh, you know, batch-made butter that we are, we haven't changed anything from that side of the business since we started. I'd like to continue like that and and stay true to what we set out to do from the start. I think this experience has really, you know, uh, brought that home for me as, as, no, this is the right way to go. Um, but as well, uh, the, the, the fact is, is that from traveling so much, um, while I was there, uh, you know, as I went out to Europe and I spent, you know, a couple of months traveling through Europe or it was all up, I think it was over two months, but it was all up about a month and a half in Europe out of the four months. Uh, it definitely showed me that there's a big world out here and that most of the products that I came across, in my travels were just mass produced products on shelves. Like it's, it's very hard to find artisan products. That that's, that's what I saw. How did it feel when you arrived back in Australia? Uh, look, it was, it was great to be back. Um, I wouldn't, I, even though I did have quite a good time over there, it's very, very hard being away from your family and kids. Let me put it that way. It's just like your wife and kids. It's, it's, it's you, you, like if they were with me, amazing. I would say, oh, you know, I'll see you in a couple of years. But uh, it's not the case. You, 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 it's, it's a very hard thing to do. It puts a lot of strain on relationships and it puts a lot of strain on, on, on your life. So your life is on hold for that period and you're just filling up time really. Um, but to come back was incredible. Um, the, you know, other than seeing Melissa and, and the kids and, and just, wow, that, that was incredible. It was really, I was very, I had butterflies in the plane landing thinking, wow, I can't wait to see them again. Uh, but also for me, when I walked into Pepe Sayer and I saw what we were doing after seeing all of that, that I saw, it was incredible, absolutely incredible what we do at Pepe Sayer. I thought, wow, you know, was that a free advert or are you going to cut that? <laughs> you can cut that if you like. Yeah. No, but we, it really we might, was. We might leave it in because it's, it's, it's true to the story. No, it, it really was. It's sort of like, you know, like a, 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 one, of, one of the best experiences I have thanks to Soma. Uh, was when I went to the to see the buffalo um, farm and 
and watch the lady make kaimak, which is like a clotted cream. In, at just, it was about two hours outside of Istanbul uh, on a farm. And, and this lady that I went to visit, that he, that he set me up with to, to go and visit the farm, was like, she goes, we, we don't take anything from the government. So no, no, um, no electricity, nothing. We're all self-sufficient um, on the farm. Uh, and it was, wow. And then they, they have like a hundred and something head of buffalo uh, that have to sort of roam a little bit free through water or that sort of thing to get the most out of their milk. And then she makes all these beautiful products out of it, like cheese and butter and, and, and learning how to make that Kymac was just fantastic. Like that was a real eye opener that, you know, there's still people out there living and wanting to make products like this, you know, and, and, and the mind blowing thing about it, her products were just incredible off the chart, the products she was making. And she's, she's, Two hours from Istanbul, which has 22 million people in it, right? And she struggles to sell what she makes. Like, like that, I was just sitting there going, what do you mean you struggle to sell what you make? You're making a product like this. And she goes, yeah, but we, we don't know how to tell people we're here. We don't know, like they struggle on that sense. So, you know, because... You can't be jack of all trades. You can't be this marketing, um, you know, whiz and then go out and try to sell uh, a Kymac and this sort of like, you know, and then you go out there and you're twice the price because it costs you more to produce things and, and, and you know, someone else is coming in from a massive ginormous factory selling it to you cheap, cheap, cheap. So they, they really, you know, so they, these sort of problems that you're seeing is quite universal, you know, like, like we have those issues here with people that make amazing stuff out in the bush and they come to the city and they can't sell them or whatever. So it's quite, quite interesting or they get eaten alive by their distributor or whatever. So, yeah. You're back in Australia in time for summer. How, how are you feeling about your summer this year in Sydney? Uh, it's, uh, let me say this, uh, I've ha- I'm having a never ending summer, right? So, uh, from, from July through to October in the, in the Northern hemisphere and now Southern hemisphere, you know, November, hopefully all the way through. I got asked the other day, uh, are you going anywhere for, for the break? And I'm saying, no, 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 I don't need a break and I don't want to go anywhere, you know? The, the furthest I want to go is like Coogee Beach. That's it. I, I don't want to go anywhere. It's sort of like, I just want to stay put. So uh, I, couldn't, I couldn't think of anything better to do than just enjoy our, our city and, and the beautiful Sydney and, and Australia at the moment. Well, Peppy, it's always an absolute pleasure to catch up with you. You've always got a story to tell and you're always digging beneath the surface, which is so amazing. Um, Have a great festive season. Please keep in touch and uh, we'll catch up again soon. Thanks so much, Hux. Talk soon. This is the Deep in the Weeds podcast. I'm Anthony Huckstep. Stay tuned as we take a deep dive into the lives of the incredible people who ply their trade in the food and hospitality sector. Special thanks to executive producer Rob Locke for making this all happen. Follow us on Instagram at Deep in the Weeds Podcast or email us at podcast at deepintheweeds.com.au. 
stay safe and be well.